Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I actually think it may be the case that the high prices in the U.S. are the reason we have high administrative costs, rather than that high administrative costs are the reason that we have high prices. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Today, we're talking about health spending. Each year, Health Affairs publishes two papers prepared by the actuaries at CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. One paper projects future health spending. The other shows historical trends. We recently published the paper that reports spending in 2019 and describes how it changed from prior years. From that report, we know that health spending in the U.S. was about $3.8 trillion in 2019, up 4.6 percent from 2018. Healthcare spending was 17.7% of the total economy, an increase of one-tenth of a percentage point from the prior year. Of course, all of these figures predate the coronavirus pandemic, which has led to major changes in healthcare delivery and in health spending. Today, I'm joined by Sherry Gleed, Dean of New York University's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, a role she's had since 2013. Sherry has a tremendous career of public service, including as Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation at HHS in the Obama administration, as a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors during the Clinton and Bush administrations. And she shares with me the experience of being on President Clinton's Health Reform Task Force oh so many years ago. Sherry, it's great to have you with us. You were not involved in preparing the health spending estimates that we're talking about today, but I can think of no one better to help us understand them. Dr. Gleed, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Alan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, let's jump right into the findings here. As I noted, uh, spending grew 4.6% in 2019 to reach $3.8 trillion. It's pretty similar over the last few years. So rather than drilling down into each little bit of the number, why don't we take a slightly higher level look? What do you? What lessons do you draw from the sustained growth that exceeds growth in the overall economy? So healthcare spending has been growing faster than the economy for pretty much as long as we've been measuring it, maybe back into the 1930s. Um, estimates from 1938 suggest that by then healthcare spending was growing faster than the overall economy. And except for a very brief period around 2010, it, that's been the story we've seen all along. Now that's in some ways, not really surprising. Healthcare spending grows as a share of the economy as other things shrink. So, for example, food used to be a much bigger share of the economy than it is today, and it has fallen as the price of food has become cheaper. Healthcare is one of the sectors that has increased, but healthcare has increased much more than most. And I think that most economists would say it's because healthcare has changed so much, because the technology of healthcare has changed, because we're able to do so much more with it. Why don't we start with that point? So when you think about growing spending, the first thing you think about is growing prices. But price inflation, as we think of a market basket, just its prices going up year after year, that is not the primary driver here, right? That's right. And actually, it wasn't in this past year either. So the actuaries, when they do their analysis, break spending into three components, one of which is a measure of utilization, which is just like how many visits did people have? How many days did they spend in the hospital? One of them is this sort of CPI, consumer price index-like price measure. And the third is a thing they call volume and intensity. And this year, as many, the biggest increases are in that residual called volume and intensity. 
When the, the CMS actuaries present these data, they do refer to it as a residual, meaning they can't directly calculate or measure volume. They look at total spending, they back out a growing population, they back out price inflation, and then they say, well, the rest, that must be intensity. But take it back to what you said. This is a very, very long-term phenomenon. So what is actually changing? So there's a really lovely paper from, there was a whole spate of papers in the in the early 2000s on this, and I think a particularly lovely one by David Cutler and some co-authors looking at the treatment of heart attacks. I think it's actually the nicest one that looks at this. And the way they talk about it, they start off with how Dwight Eisenhower was treated for his heart attack, which was a month of bed rest. Um, well, it took a lot of Eisenhower's time, but it didn't take a whole lot of medical resources. If you shift forward in time, what you see is that we've switched off how we treat heart attacks. And not only have we switched it off, and I think this was the point David was making, but those changes have actually led to improvements in survival from a heart attack. In fact, in his paper, he argues the cost of surviving a heart attack has fallen over time, even as the cost of treating a heart attack has increased. And I think that little switch off, you know, the cost of the treatments we provide and sort of the quality adjusted or outcome adjusted cost is an important thing for us to keep in mind. And I would say this year more than ever, if I thought about it, if we had spent twice as much on healthcare this year and had saved ourselves from COVID, goodness, that would have been an awfully good trade-off, right? Right. So historically, we've sort of been doing miniature versions of that year after year. We improve care and it costs more. But, you know, in a lot of industries, technology is certainly one that people point out. Innovation is often thought to reduce costs. My highly functional computer is certainly no more and maybe less than the one I had in graduate school. And it can do a million things that I couldn't have even contemplated back then. So what's going on here? A couple of distinct points. One is, while it is true that your computer is probably not much more expensive than the one you had in graduate school, and it does a lot more, actually spending on computers has gone up. So in the same sense that we think of national health expenditures as going up, we don't really break out that price and quantity piece. And it's really mucky in the healthcare sphere, because we actually treat things we never used to treat before. We provide kinds of care we never did before. And so it's actually very hard to to actually break out what's going on. That's one piece of this. A second piece of it is a lot of the cost. You know, before you go on, I just, I'm thinking about this with technology, right? So in graduate school, I had a dual floppy drive. That won't mean anything to a lot of our listeners. But now I have a desktop at the office. I have a laptop. I have an iPhone. I have an iPad. And so what you're saying is, in some sense, because they're better, I buy more of them. You buy more of them, exactly. So you're actually spending, you are spending, I'm sure, a larger share of your income adjusted for changes in your income. Since yeah, graduate I was a graduate school. student. That's a bad graduate example, student, but right? I get your You point. know what I mean, right? So, so that's changed. And, and there again, like, so a, an example I like there is gallstone surgery. When we developed this means for doing gallstone surgery called cystectomy laparoscopically, the number of people who got their gallstones out increased dramatically. The editors at the time of the of JAMA said, we don't understand this. Like, why has there been an outbreak of gallstone disease? Of course, there wasn't. But a lot of people who were willing to wait and experience a lot of pain in exchange for not getting the gall- their gallstones out suddenly said, you know what? I'm just going to change here. So so I think it's, it's, it's a very nuanced problem. And to step back, the piece of it that is particularly problematic is 
on the whole, we don't really care whether you spend a lot of money on computers or not. You, Alan Weil, we might worry a little bit about the cost of computers and access to computers for, say, school kids right now in COVID, but that's a pretty small part of our problem. In healthcare, that's quite different. And it's really the fact that we're concerned about making sure that people who might not be able to afford the latest computer or surgery, whatever, get access to it, that really makes healthcare spending so different from increases in spending in other sectors. Yeah, so that gets to a, a very complex topic that we may or may not want to touch on here, which is that aggregate spending and how much it costs me when I need healthcare services are not the same thing. And this report is really about the aggregate. That's right. This is about the aggregate. And the only place that this that you actually see a little bit of coming closer to people is looking at the breakdown between what's happening to out-of-pocket spending, say, and what's happening to aggregate spending. And there, too, in general, out-of-pocket spending is not increasing that quickly, but it is often increasing faster than people's wages. And it's still a very high number for low-income people. And it's not equally distributed. And it's certainly not equally distributed. So and that's a big that part gets of us our to a coverage point, right? And that's actually something that they talk about a little bit here in the in the actuaries report as well. They talk about changes in the distribution of spending between sources and how and some of that increase in spending is because more people have coverage. So let's uh, turn to some of the areas that people think about as uh, potential targets for reducing spending, even though we've just had a nice conversation about the important value you sometimes get from higher levels of spending. There's a big move in healthcare around value-based payment, paying for outcomes you can, there's so many different names this goes by. Where does that fit in a paper that talks about overall spending in healthcare? So let me step back to the point that we made earlier, because I think that's really where, it, where we might think about it. So we are spending a lot of money. And I think the question we all want to be asking is, is the money we're spending worth it? If it's worth it, if we're getting things that we really value for it, that increase in spending on heart attacks that bought survival, for example, well, then it becomes a distributional issue, but but it's one we can deal with. Unfortunately, what we know is that there's a considerable amount of spending in the healthcare sector, which doesn't really produce value. I would say, because this is a particular bugaboo of mine, that there's a considerable amount of spending everywhere in the economy that doesn't provide value. You've probably seen a lot of really bad movies, and it doesn't make you think that the entire movie industry is inefficient or wrong in the way that we think about it in healthcare. But there is a lot of waste or healthcare spending that doesn't do what it should do. And one concern is that the way we pay for healthcare, which is really on the basis of what people do and not what they produce for it, may actually bring us further away from getting true value from the money we spend in healthcare. So the actuaries never talk in their paper about what value we get. And the closest we ever get to it is something like value-based payment, where we're trying to very explicitly align the payment with the value that we're getting for it. So, you know, when we have the actuaries who prepare the report, they're very careful, as actuaries tend to be, about not going beyond the evidence. You aren't constrained quite the same way. You're not speaking on behalf or at risk of being perceived as speaking on behalf of the federal government or CMS. What is your sense about the prospects for these paying for outcomes, paying for what you produce for making a serious dent in healthcare spending? I'll tell you honestly, Alan, I'm somewhat skeptical. Um, you probably know that coming from me because we've had conversations about this in the past. First of all, I think I'd go back to my movie point, which is that we often think about value-based spending against some idealized thought about what the system would look like if everything were right on target. 
but we actually don't observe any any systems that work that way to begin with. So it may be that that our our expectations of the potential gains here are much bigger than than we really would think that they were. So I, I think that's a, an important consideration here. There is some evidence, at least, that patients and doctors do prefer higher quality providers, and so some of that value based incentive system is already in place in a different way. So I think I would just put that to one side. There's been a bunch of research now on the various value-based incentive programs that are out there. And I think what they show is a, let's say a mixed bag. Some things really show very little evidence of any great gain. A lot of the bundled payment demonstrations showed really nothing. Some of them show some evidence of modest improvements. And that's good. I guess a question will be whether as we diffuse those improvements, those those payment models to more providers, whether those uh, improvements are maintained. One of the things I think that is challenging here is that uh, managing to a outcome-based payment model is much harder than managing to a input-based or just output-based payment model. And the places that haven't adopted these models yet may just not have the management capacity to really be able to perform. So I think there's reason to suspect that you, you'd actually see some a dilution of this effect as it, as it spreads out into the system. We don't know the answer to that yet. Certainly, I think what we do know is that the great hopes of people who were advocates for value-based payment, that this would really be quite transformative, don't really seem to have been realized. This may be improving things at the margins in different ways. They may, it may also set up new opportunities for gaming, and Lord knows we do enough of that in our healthcare system. Uh, I don't think it's going to be transformational. Well, it's a good place for us to take a quick break. Before hitting the floors of Congress, health policy begins in the pages of health affairs. Stay up to date with the latest research and insights by subscribing to the leading peer-reviewed health policy journal today. As a nonpartisan forum, Health Affairs addresses today's leading issues in healthcare. Look at the articles from our October issue. Janet Curry explains why the U.S. underinvests in child health, while Dolores Acevedo-Garcia explores community-level health equity opportunity gaps. By subscribing, not only do you have access to more than 30 years of Health Affairs back catalog, but also access to a head of print articles. Subscribe by visiting our website at www.healthaffairs.org. And we're back with Sherry Glee talking about health spending. Before the break, you were talking about potential areas for savings. Another area that I know you've put some attention into is administrative costs. If you look at the paper, you see $240 billion of what's called net cost of health insurance. That's the part of premiums that isn't paid out in claims. There's $50 billion of government administration, and then there are administrative costs buried inside the hospital and the physician lines. What can we do about this high level of administrative spending, certainly compared to other countries around the world? So I guess there are a couple of ideas there that I think that we need to get at. One thing, and I, I just want to point this out, I, I know I keep coming back to the same line of argument, but we actually never calculate administrative costs in other parts of the economy. I could not tell you how much the administrative costs of my local grocery store are or what share of legal fees are due to administrative costs. If you actually start doing a little bit of forensic accounting, you find out that those numbers are pretty high throughout the economy. And that's because we are a very knowledge-based economy. And so Accounting for information, which is really what administrative costs are about, is going to be an important element of that. That does not explain why our costs are so much higher than those in other countries. But I think, again, it's not exactly clear what the number really should be. Uh, We should certainly not be aiming for 
the lowest possible administrative costs. Just like you wouldn't want to go to the law firm that was the, had the lowest possible administrative costs or the restaurant with the lowest possible administrative costs. This is just not the desideratum. We should be looking at which place provides us with the greatest value and how that is distributed among the inputs is really not, I think, something we should be concerned about as policy people. All that said, there does seem to be just an awful lot of administrative cost in the U.S. healthcare system and what's going on there and, and where is it coming from? I want to say I don't think we really know. Some of the administrative costs of health insurance, we, I think the, the health insurance side of it, we understand somewhat better. There are costs of selling health insurance. There are costs of enrolling people in health insurance. Those are costs that other countries, even countries with multi-payer systems, can often do somewhat in a less costly way. Although it'd be interesting to compare the cost of insurance overhead in places like the Netherlands or Switzerland, where you have a more individual-based competing private health insurance system. The high administrative costs that happen in provider systems and in the relationship between providers and insurers. So we think about the administrative costs that exist between insurers and individuals or employers. I think we have a handle on those. The place we don't really have a very good handle is the relationship between insurers and providers. We don't even really know how that breaks out between public payers and private payers. And one of the things that's really curious about it is there doesn't seem to be a lot of market motivation to reduce those costs. What do I mean by this? Some time ago, I did a paper with a colleague looking at why doctors who complain endlessly about administrative costs contract with so many different managed care plans. If it really is such a pain to deal with each of these separate insurers, you would think that they'd be willing to accept slightly lower payment rates in exchange for a larger volume of business from just a small number of insurers, but that's not how they behave. You mean you mean physicians are not economically rational? I'm not sure any of us are fully economically rational. You would think that some physician groups would have made that kind of deal or that a hospital would make that kind of deal. And I think part of the reason that they don't is because it isn't actually the multiplicity of insurers that is the reason those costs are high. So we think of it as being about fragmentation, about the fact that there are so many different insurers. And I think especially in an era of computers, it's hard to see why that should be true. At this moment, the buskers in Central Park take Venmo and PayPal and cash. And if they can handle that much administrative cost, it's hard for me to see that, you know, that, that this is really, it's that multiplicity that is really the problem here. I suspect that rather what it is, is that as the price of healthcare gets higher, the motivation and incentive to question every payment, to make sure that all of the codes are right, and conversely, to upcode, to make sure that you've actually coded every diagnosis, to do all of that extra work just gets bigger and bigger. And so I actually think it may be the case that the high prices in the U.S. are the reason we have high administrative costs, rather than that high administrative costs are the reason that we have high prices. Uh, let's shift gears. You know, when I look at the paper every year, I tend to focus on the big numbers, hospital spending, physician spending. But at this time, there is a number that really stands out that I haven't tended to focus on in the past, and that is public health expenditures. In 2019, that was less than $100 billion, which looks to me to be about $300 a person, just a few percent of our total spending. We're probably going to need to rethink this number in uh, the context of COVID. Just wonder if you have any thoughts about that. So public health spending is always a tricky piece of the puzzle to look at because public health spending is most effective when you can't observe its value. 
right? If COVID had never come to the United States, our investments in public health spending would have been would have paid off a gazillion times over, but no one would ever realize it. And we hear this debate all the time, right? We, you know, why are we why are we shutting things down when the rates are really low? You're like, but the rates are low because we shut things down. It's very hard to to process that sort of temporal and precautionary motivation here. A big challenge for public health spending is that the most important parts of public health spending are the ones that affect people where you don't know who the people are. They may be people in the future who don't even exist at the moment. That's actually the most valuable part of public health, putting your money. So I think a challenge with public health spending is it's not so much how much we spend on public health that's key. It's, it's not clear that if we had spent three times as much on public health that we'd be in a different place at this moment. The question is, where are you spending it and what are you doing with it? And, and can you be clever and thoughtful about it? And that's really hard. So you've see, we've seen some really interesting examples where people have at various times been clever and thoughtful about it. I think about Farzad Mostashari and the New York City Health Department building its syndromic surveillance system. But then, you know, the syndromic surveillance system was ringing bells back in in March and people were not thinking about it. So it's really, really hard to keep people, you know, motivated. I suspect public health and the success of public health is about a lot more than the money that goes into public health. It's about thinking of it as a creative and complex system. And how, how do you do that? How do we get really smart people to see this as really exciting? So I guess a good thing about COVID, if one can say that, is that it's going to be a lot sexier to work in public health for the next five or 10 years. And that's great because it'll bring some really smart people, not not to denigrate any of the people who are there now, but just, you know, it'll bring a new infusion of energy and creativity to the field, which I think is it really needs. Well, speaking of the field, before we wrap up, I just want to ask you one or two questions about your own career. You've done so much, it's hard to know where to focus. But one place that people probably don't know a whole lot about is ASPE. You are the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation. Talk a little bit about what that job is and what made it something you wanted to do. ASPE is a thing no one really understands. Actually, I think a challenge for ASPE is that most secretaries of health and human services don't understand what it is either. It's such an unusual organization. It's actually in some ways similar to the Council of Economic Advisors, where I had been a senior economist many years earlier. So I remember actually someone asking me, well, what does ASPE do? And having thought for a moment, I looked back at them and said, ASPE doesn't do anything. ASPE thinks. So ASPE is like the internal think tank of the Department of Health and Human Services. It fulfills a number of functions. One is it thinks at the intersection of the operating divisions of HHS. So HHS has operating divisions like the Food and Drug Administration, the Centers for Medicare Services, the CDC, and so on. ASPE, because it uh, reports to the secretary, can be one of the places that thinks across the boundaries of those different organizations, um, which is a very hard thing to do otherwise. ASPE has a great staff. I mean, really, really smart people who just know an enormous amount. I learned so much from them. And they not only know substantively a lot about their fields, they also know how government works. So can I tell you one of my great success ASPE stories? Because I'd love to hear it. Okay. So one of the things that the Secretary Sibelius had tasked us with at ASPE or at the entire department was to address LGBTQ issues more aggressively within the department to think about it. And one of the things that the LGBTQ community was really interested in is getting questions on surveys about gender identity and sexuality and so on. So we had a whole thing 
We actually got questions about sexual orientation asked on the National Health Interview Survey. They're now asked in a regular, on a regular basis, and that was actually a big ASPE triumph. But the real ASPE triumph was the transgender community wanted to get questions about gender identity asked. And the thing about gender identity is it's really hard to ask about it, as I learned, for a couple of reasons. One is there are not a lot of transgender people, and so the sample sizes are small. And if you're doing this in a pretty small survey, you're not going to get enough people to be able to do anything with it. Also, you have to ask quite a few questions, at least two questions, to be able to find out whether somebody, somebody's current gender identity is different from the one they were assigned at birth. So you have to ask them about their current gender identity, and you have to ask them about the one assigned at birth. Every question on a survey is expensive. And there's also politics. So all of this made it really, really hard to think about how we could respond to this community. But we had a wonderful person to ask me, Jim Scanlon, who was the head of the uh, Office of Science and Data Policy, and he'd been there a long time. And he knew the government and he knew things in a way that none of us policy wonks outside know. And he said, you know, Sherry, we can't do this on the National Health Interview Survey, but the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance Survey, that's a telephone survey, which means that the confidentiality issues are much less concerning because people don't know what the question asked was. They only know the answer. And it has a much bigger N. So if we could get this question down to the CDC to offer it up to states to ask on the BRFSS, we could do this. And he did it. And we got a question of gender identity in a number of state surveys. And so that's actually how we know something about the transgender population today. And it's because of this, the brilliance of the civil service at ASPE. That's a great story. Sherry, it's always a pleasure talking to you. It's great to get your insight, not just on this one paper, but on a career in healthcare and health economics. Uh, thanks so much for spending some time with me today. Thank you, Alan. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Brian Dobbs, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.